Well, good morning again. Let me turn to, if you want to, grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. That's where we're going to be today. 2 Timothy, if you don't know where it's at, it's way towards the back of the Bible. And if you've gone past Hebrews, you've gone too far. And it's 2 Timothy, and there are two. Uh, But before we get there, and and Pat, you're going to like this, uh, this little opening here. In 1997, a junior high boy named Nathan Zoner, true story, did a science project at Eagle Rock Junior High School. And he won first place in the science fair project. He warned people. He went out into the public square. He went out onto, into a mall. And he, were, uh, he warned everybody that he spoke to about the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide. DHMO. And in his project, he proved that DHMO was colorless, odorless, tasteless, but kills uncounted thousands of people each year. It, uh, can, if it's inhaled, it causes death. Uh, it causes excessive sweating and vomiting. It's a major component of acid rain. It contributes to the erosion of our natural landscape. DHMO has been found in every stream and lake and reservoir in the United States. It is used as an industrial solvent. It is also used in nuclear power plants. Companies are guilty of of dumping DHMO into rivers and oceans, and nothing is being done about it. So Nathan asked 50 people to sign his petition so he could take his petition and show a government official. He got 43 people to sign against DHMO. Six of them were undecided. And one person, one out of 50, knew what dihydrogen monoxide is. Another way to say it is H2O water. He convinced 43 people to sign a petition to ban water. Isn't that silly? Lucy's going, yeah, that's pretty Susan. Do you know through fear? Because that's what motivated the people to sign the petition was fear. Oh my gosh, there's this thing called HMDO and we have to get rid of it. And fear, is our society full of fear right now? Are we offended by everything and fearful of everybody and it seems like we're, we're not becoming unified, we're becoming disunified? Fear is a real thing, isn't it? And through fear or faith, a Christian will walk. You're going to walk out your Christianity, you're going to walk out your life with Jesus either in fear or it's going to be based in faith. You walk, one or the other. <clears throat> and the church will either walk in fear or faith depending on what the culture is doing. So this week, we're finishing the life of Paul. Now, last week, we were in the Philippian jail, and the Philippian jailer saved, came to Christ, change of life, and now we're 20 years later. And now Paul in Corinthians is going to give us a little snapshot of why if anybody, any Christian should be afraid of his culture, it should be him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, I have worked hard as being a a Christian, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in an open ocean. I have constantly been on the move. I have been danger 
from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep, and I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. Besides that, I face the pressure, the emotional pressure of my love for all of you. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not burn inwardly? Paul had reason to be afraid of his culture because he got beat up all the time. He, got, he, he, he just had it really, really rough. Now, let me set the context of today's passage. Um, First time Paul is arrested, remember he gets arrested in Jerusalem and he goes and he stands before Caesar and that takes a few years, but he was under house arrest when that happened, which means that he could have people come and go. It's, it's kind of like a modern day uh, bracelet that they put on an ankle when you're getting parole. And so Paul is under quote house arrest, but he has the ability to preach all the time. People come and go, he writes letters, he's not being hurt. Nothing bad is happening to Paul, but now 20 years later, things have shifted. Nero? How many of you know the story of Nero that he, he wanted a particular place in Rome to build his new palace? So he set that place on fire, but the fire got out of control and it burnt like most of the city or a large portion of the city. So Nero had to come up with a scapegoat, and his scapegoat was the Christians, It was this weird little religious sect that was not really in favor with the people of society, but it was in favor with the people that were the slaves, the workers. Their abomination, they were accused of being cannibals. They heard that they were eating the body of this person named Jesus, and they were drinking his blood. And so Nero needed a scapegoat. So what did he do? He blamed the Christians. Christians started being attacked. Nero started to take the religious, I mean the Christian leaders in Rome, did terrible things to him. He would sow children in a dead carcass and throw it in the arena and then let the lions out. He would dip people, Christians, in tar, still alive, and then light them on fire to illuminate the Colosseum. And guess who's the leader of the Christians? Who's leading this movement? Oh yeah, that guy. That guy named Paul. So this time Paul is arrested, but he has no cushy ankle bracelet. He is now thrown into a prison. He's thrown into a dungeon. He is stripped naked. He is in chains where the chains just rub you raw. I don't know if you've ever been rubbed raw by a piece of metal that's rusty. This is where we find Paul, and he's in a Roman cell, and he's going to talk to his son, his son in the faith, Timothy. Now, because of all this persecution, Christians have become frightened. Fear is starting to overtake them. The government is hunting them down. Persecution is hot and heavy, and corrupt teaching has entered into the church. Now, when Paul wrote Timothy, before things were, when things were good, he said this, some have wandered away from the faith. Later on, some have rejected and shipwrecked their faith. Some have turned away to follow Satan. 
Some are eager for money and they're in this thing called Christianity to get a free, easy lifestyle. Some have wandered away from the faith because they're chasing knowledge, just false knowledge. That's in the first Timothy. Second Timothy comes along and Paul writes these words. He says, everyone has deserted me. I'm alone. He could have been full of fear. He could have been full of regret. But that's not what we're going to read. He needs to give some words to Timothy. It's going to be his last words to Timothy. He's passing on the fight of faith to a younger man. Now, the last words on a deathbed, are they important? We don't say, hey, the Aggies won. We don't talk about the weather when someone's on the deathbed. We don't talk about who's in power politically. Last words are of a different nature, a different kind, a different substance. They're a little bit more sobering. It's the words that matter. Some of us, I bet you every one of us in here would give anything for five minutes with someone that has passed on that we loved, that we would like to talk to. I can list a page full of people that I would love to talk to. I just had five more minutes. The last words somebody says are important. The last words of Paul to Timothy are important. Do you have any memories of those last words of loved ones? I had an opportunity once. You know, when I was in my ministry in in Missouri, um, I, I got to be with a lot of people that got to go home and meet Jesus. And there was one particular man, I actually videotaped his last words He wanted to share with other Christians his walk. And so I videotaped it. But let me sum it up for you. This man in the 50s was driving a car with his wife and two children and got in a car accident and killed his his wife and two children, and he was by himself. He remarried and then had three more children. Now he's at the end of his life, and this is what he told me to pass on to any other Christian. He said, love the Lord, love his word, and serve others. So what last words does Paul share with Timothy? What last words would he like to share with this church? Okay, we're in 2 Timothy, you're in chapter 1. Let's begin at verse 1 and we'll read it just a little bit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as as my ancestors with a clear conscience, even though I'm being run down by everybody else, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Here's where we really want to focus in. Take a look at verse 6. For this reason, here are my last words to you on my deathbed. 
For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Let me share with you just the very first fill in the blank that I want us to focus on out of this passage. And that is Paul in his last words to Timothy says, remember and renew your gift. Every Christian, when they come to Christ, you are given a gift. It is a spiritual gift, not a physical gift. Sometimes we get our talents mixed up with with a gifting that God has given us. And he says, and it's an interesting word that he uses. To, he says to keep the fire alive, to fan in the embers into flame. It's an idea of constantly working in the sense of fighting the culture so your gift can live. In addition to a a gift of ministry, we have the Holy Spirit that then drives that gift. And and He is our, our, our resource, our power. I don't know, how many of you remember the song, This Little Light of Mine? Raise your hand if you know that. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, right? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Even as children, we were taught that as you become a Christian, as you make that decision, you're not supposed to be a secret Christian. The culture may go this way, it may go that way, it may go this way, it may go that way, but you have been given a gift, and Paul says, fan it. Don't let it die out just because you're afraid. The culture is getting more anti-Christian in at least our culture, and there is a tendency to kind of I'm going to hide it under a bushel because I don't want the trouble that comes. But then look at verse 7. That spirit of fear does not come from God. Look at it. Verse 7. For God gave us not a spirit of fear. That word, it's a unique word. It's only one time in the Bible used. It's not the regular word that is in the Greek for fear, which is phobia. You know, you say I have a, I'm a hypochondriac and it's a phobia. It means it's an irrational fear. It's a different kind of word. It's, it's a word Delilah, if I'm pronouncing it right, D-E-I-L-A. And it means cowardly. It means constant fear. Being full of fearfulness. It's looking over your shoulder all the time. And it's almost immobilizing this kind of fear. Denotes a lack of courage. Let me say it this way. Not willing to stand up for what you believe. Can I say that again? Not willing to stand up for what you believe is right. If a situation comes, you shut down and you say, well, I don't want the conflict. 
I don't want to have people think bad of me. You know, I, I'd rather just, just be quiet and just go with the flow. Go with the flow. That's the kind of cowardliness it's talking about. Whether you're not willing to stand up for what you believe at home, at work, in the voting booth, your use of time, your resources, you tell people what you think they want to hear so you'll be accepted. Are you with me on this? That that's how powerful this fear is. That we have become afraid of what everybody else thinks of us. Because we are so in love with being accepted. We're so in love, I'm talking as a culture, so in love with being politically correct. We don't want anybody to say anything bad against us. Walking in fear is not walking in faith, though. When we came to Christ, the spirit of fear was broken off of us. Hallelujah. Romans 8.15 says it this way, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. So here's the second fill in the blank. God's spirit gives your spirit, the very first fill in the blank on point number two is he gives you power. Go back to the text. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of what? Say it with me. Power. I love the word. The actual, if we transliterate the word from the original language, it's the word dunamis. Dynamite. We get the, the word dynamite from dunamis. It's powerful, but there's a nuance to it. This word in the Greek language has a nuance to it. It's really cool. It's not a destructive power. It's a power that is being harnessed for production, something that's good. You have a power in you that is explosive for good. That's what God has given you. That is cool. You know, when Paul prays for the Ephesians, he, let's see what time it is. No, we don't have time. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, you can write it down if you want to. It talks about how God has already given you this power. You don't have to ask God for power. He's already given you power. Power to do what? What do we have the power to do? One of the things we have the power to do is to pray with power. No mamby-pamby prayer. Have you ever had a flare prayer? You know, you're driving your car off the cliff and you think, oh, this would be a good time to pray. You get your gun out and you shoot a flare prayer up. God, save me. But you're really not interested in God's deliverance. But you pray with power. I don't know if you've ever prayed in such a way that you've asked God and you feel like he has spoken to your heart, it's going to be okay, and it's like this power has been released and you're okay with it. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen when we are really praying with power. Not, and I, and I, I hope you understand, these are good things to teach children, but there comes a point in time where we don't say, now I lay me down to sleep for the soul of my Lord to keep. That if I die before I wake, that you, you know, or rub a dub dub, thanks for the grub, or you know, those are those are not powerful prayers. Those are not connecting your heart to the heart of God. That's where the power is. And when you can pray with power, the power that is already been given to you, mountains get moved. Are you with me on this? Do you remember when my daughter, our daughter, was critically sick? 
The mold was ravaging the inside. The cyst on her brain had grown. Her body, her gallbladder, shutting down. Kidneys, shutting down. Less than 100 pounds. She's in there 90 pounds. I went for a walk in my neighborhood. And I was just just praying. Crying. And praying. And then suddenly, the Lord spoke to my heart. And there was this rainbow. You remember I took a picture of it? It went from this end all the way to this end. And the Lord said, I am the faithful one. And that promise, because that's what a rainbow is, right then, peace overwhelmed me. And I have not been anxious about my daughter ever since. Wouldn't have happened without his power. God did not give me a a spirit of fear, but he has given you and I a spirit of what? Dunamis, power. The power to be illumined, to be a light bulb, to to see things with clarity, to, to have fear stripped away from us because fear brings confusion, right? Fear brings second guessing. Fear brings scatterbrained. None of you have scatterbrained, do you? power to be illumined, the power to think clearly, the power to see everything as the way it is comes from this. The power to repent, the power to change. Addictions can be broken, stinking thinking stopped, stopped in its tracks, and strongholds are destroyed by this power. So many times if we're afraid of our culture, we're afraid, then we're not going to be living by that power. We're going to be in our stinking thinking. We're going to be in our muddled thinking. We're, we're, gonna, we're not going to know what way is up and which way is right. Do, we, do our young people, are they inheriting a world that's out of control? It's a little out of control, folks. How are they going to navigate it? With this, with the power, the power of God. And not only the power to to repent and the power to have changed behavior, but the power to bear fruit by exercising your gift. Man. Then he goes on and he says, not only a power, a, a, a spirit of power, but a spirit of what? What's the second fill in the blank, Heather? It is not only power, but love. Selfless love that desires and works for the best interest of the one loved. We're given the badge of love that the world may know that we are really Jesus' disciples by how we love one another. That's the real test of being a follower of Christ. Do you love? We're given the spirit of love that all believers would unite us, we'd be united in, in that love. Love does the right thing, whether it causes pain for yourself or pain for the other person. And I'll tell you what, if you haven't figured this out, Yet, let me share you this. It takes supernatural power to love people that hate you. I have people that have hated me before. And it's so easy to hate back. That's what's happening in our country today. It's so easy to hate. And it takes God in you to be able to love your enemy. Those that would try to hurt you. That's that power that he has given us to be able to love the unlovely. 
Third one is he's given us the spirit of self-control, a sound mind. Clarity of thought shows up in behavior. Do you know what the difference is between a child and an adult? Well, there's lots. You probably would go on a fishing expedition to figure out the difference that I'm hunting for between a child and an adult. But let me sum it up for you. It's self-control. It's self-control. Do you know they've done experiments where they've taken a plate of cookies and they've brought them into a room full of children and they have put one cookie on one plate and then they said, you can choose to have the cookie right now, but if you wait till tomorrow, you can have five cookies. What do you think the kids did? Those that had self-control, word that we have forgotten in our society, delayed gratification. Some children said, I would rather have five cookies tomorrow than have one for today. What were they exercising? Self-control. You have been given a spirit of self-control. Clarity of thought that shows up. Self-control is about coming then under the control of Jesus. Not lashing out, not tearing down, not having a critical spirit, not pointing the finger and blaming. Who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan. Do you want to be like him? You don't want to be like him. Let God do his job. We have been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. And they belong to every believer. We're not just born with them. They are a resource to your gifting. Power to be effective in his service and sanctification. And you're changing love to have the right attitude towards God's self and others. And self-control to live our lives according to his will. So look at, here's the last fill in the blank, verse 8. I'll read it. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of being a Christian in a culture that is running Christians down. Be a man and stand up for righteousness. Can I say that? I'll say, when I say man, I mean inclusive of men, women, okay? Just had to throw that in there. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me of his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's the fill in the blank. So join me in suffering, Timothy. Join me in suffering, church. If the culture goes against you, don't worry about it. You have been given a spirit of power and love and self-control that you can go against any cultural norms that are no longer norm. The church, every believer is swimming upstream against the current of our culture. Don't you feel like sometimes a little fish? And you're just, you're trying to go upstream and all of this junk is just keeps coming down and coming down. And it's so easy to get discouraged. Are you with me on that? Some of us, like me, I just don't listen. But then that's not really good either. I just tune everybody out. I want to live in my own little bubble. Well, no, I wasn't asked to live in my bubble where I can't let my light shine I have to I have to just live my life in a culture 
that is overtly against Christ or sometimes passively against Christ. The church can't be fearful of the future nor fearful for taking a stand for Christ. That's not the spirit that you've been given. It said this in the text, and called us to a holy calling for his own purpose. That means that you, you have to live in a world and, and stand up for righteousness. So what is this about? It's a personal letter to a father, to a son, his last words. But for us, it's about how a church cannot be ashamed of the words and the values of Jesus. And the spirit of power and love and self-control comes from the Holy Spirit by not being politically correct or purposely ignorant of the culture. Courage! Let me just sum this up. Let me close. Courage is a choice. I'm just going to put my hands in my pockets and just be really relaxed about this. Courage is a choice that you have to choose. It's not a reaction. Timid or bold, fearful or faithful, looking to stand or looking for the exit, what kind of spirit do you have in your life? spirit of power and love and control or a spirit of fear do you need Jesus answer that basic question do you need Jesus have you surrendered to him all that that means have you rejected being politically correct in a culture that has embraced it Are you called to being like Jesus? Do we need to get together and have a cup of coffee and answer questions if you have any doubt about these questions? We can encourage one another, and that's part of being a brother and sister in Christ. I need you (laughs) as much as you need me. We're a gift to one another. Did you realize that? You're a gift to everybody here. Because when love and self-control and power unites us, we can be courageous, can't we? You're not alone. Would you say that out loud? But say it this way. Personalize it. I am not alone. Say it with me on the count of three. I am not alone. God has given you not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline, no matter what your week was like, is like, or will be like. And we have one another to lean on. Praise God. Let me pray. Father.